Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hello and welcome to Comic Book Yeti's Cryptid Creator Corner podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jimmy Gasparro, and I am here with writer uh, and letterer. Uh, I, I think I think I can call him that, uh, Jason McNamara. Uh, and we are here to talk about a bunch of stuff. Uh, there's a lot of things I want to ask Jason about, um, including what he'd do with the the sequel to Halloween Three: Season of the Witch. Uh, but mainly, we're going to talk about his newest book coming from Dark Horse Comics in June. Past tense. I just got to read it, and I mean, it is described as a neo noir thriller. I absolutely loved it. I mean, it is dark, it is gripping, it takes you on a wild ride. A phenomenal artwork. It's Alberto uh, Masagia and uh, Paul Little. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to talk all about it with Jason. So Jason, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jimmy. Uh, thanks for taking time out of your day to talk about it. You uh, you called me a letterer. And uh, I have lettered all of pretty much all of my books. And I never credit myself as a letterer because I don't think I'm very good. I think uh, I like the Johnny Ramone school of lettering, like just good enough. Don't wait until you're perfect. So uh, I know that many, if anyone is a professional letterer, except past tense, it sees that I'm credited as a letterer, their heart will probably break a tiny bit. <laughs> but I apologize to all the real letterers out there. I just can't afford you. Well, I, uh, you know what I think, though? I, I think that's kind of fascinating um, that you've you know, taken on to do that like in your work, whether or not it's a financial issue or whether or not, you know, you really care about it. Lettering is its own craft. And I think the number of books when I was doing research for this going through that you've lettered, I, and even, you know, I'm, I'm going to say it. I think you can call yourself a letterer. <laughs> Bless your heart. Uh, I appreciate that. Don't tell Nate Picos you said that. I won't. We won't. We, we won't tell uh, Nate. <laughs> So it's also part of my process when I write is that um, when I get the artwork, I change all the words anyway. You ever been at a party or an event or a bartending, possibly a podcast? Uh, and then afterwards, you think, oh, I should have said this or I should have said that. You have like a better idea of what you should have done in that moment. With artwork, you can always change the lettering up until it goes to print. So uh, not only do I letter my own books because I am cheap and I'm, everything is uh, DIY pretty much, but also I would drive a letterer crazy because I'm going to wordsmith change words around, change phrases around. Um, I'm really concerned about how your eye moves across a page and I want to slow down the reading experience as much as possible. So I want to ping pong dialogue around artwork to slow your eye down. Um, so I would, it would, I would drive a, a letter at shit crazy. Because <laughs> I've rewritten, I probably rewrote half the dialogue in this book after it was lettered. I know I definitely drove our editor, uh, Brett Israel, crazy. Yeah, I think I read for, I think I read in an interview you did when you were talking about uh, the Rattler, which was uh, that once you, I think you started getting in, it's Greg Hinkle. Mm -hmm. And once you started to get in the artwork that you rewrote 50% of the script. <laughs> I did. And, and the book had a whole narration, like a whole like dark noir narration. And I was like, yeah, we don't need it. I took it all out. But Greg, I can usually take words out because his, his artwork is so expressive and it's atmospheric. And then I was like, you know what? My dumb, dumb words are just getting in the way. Let, let, let Greg do his thing. 
with past tense, I almost had like Alberta was a phenomenal artist and storyteller, but there was so much world building and minutia about technology and the plot that that book is probably has the most words in it. It probably has the, the last five graphic novels I've done probably didn't have that many words in it as uh, past tense does. So I apologize to Alberto because I really covered up some beautiful, beautiful artwork of his. Well, I, I will say this though, for the, I mean, the artwork is gorgeous. Um, and you really get a sense like you're living in the near future. Uh, I felt with the clothing styles, something I, I noticed with the building design, it never felt like you were living too far in the future where you felt removed from it. Um, Although the coloring, Paul Little's coloring is brighter than the cinematography for something like Children of Men. Like, I felt like Children of Men is a movie, if you're familiar with it, does a good job of making you feel like you're living in the near future. And that's what I really felt reading Past Tense. I didn't want to feel like the Jetsons. Like, you had no emotional stake in this world. Like, this is just yeah. other people. Like, no, this is, this is, could be, is it about to be our world? And I think of things like um, Escape from New York or like Children of Men. Things that are like just around the corner. There was um, that movie Possessor by David Lynch's kid. I know it's terrible to call him. We'll call him Kid, uh, kid Cronenberg. Sorry, it's David <laughs> Cronenberg. So Kid Cronenberg did a movie called Possessor that was like just slightly above where we are now. And I just thought that was a phenomenal approach because you feel it. You're almost in that world. And in past tense, we also go back through time a little bit, right? And I didn't want the back through time periods to be periods we hadn't lived through so when they go into the past you could say oh i was in this world at that time like i am just off panel somewhere so i wanted it to feel lived in and relatable and not um just so cold and removed you know it's it's a thriller you should be emotionally involved in the character um and yeah, in this I book there is a, a internal monologue that i didn't rip out uh, actually the character he um if you've ever worked in customer service you, you have like your customer facing voice, just like, hi, how are you? Lovely to see you. And then there's your internal voice where like, this is a living hell. Why is this person back again? Uh, I've bartended, I've worked in coffee shops and you have to have that duality. So I wanted Ashley to feel like someone who's just got like a, like her job as a technician at past tense is not, she's not Reed Richards. She's not doing in some heavy science. This is a pedestrian job that you or I might have in a couple of years. Um, I equate it to if you the very first Alien. I felt like that was even though it's space and it's the future, it's so relatable because those people have working class jobs. They're yeah. just truckers in space. They're not these heavy egghead science types. And I wanted to do that with Ashley as well. Yeah, I I really appreciated that because when you when you first hear about the concept, and for anyone that doesn't know and is, is listening, past tense is um, essentially a company that sends camera drones to the past to show what actually happened in points in history from the fantastical to the mundane and folks pay to to view these things and ashley is an attendant and yet it had that sense of alien truckers in space or i thought about expanse when they focus the expanse when they focus on the miners on uh, you know one of the asteroid belt like this is somebody who there's this Amazing concept of technology, all these things. Somebody might have gone way into like a conspiracy theory or all different things that could be done with this. But we're centered on a character that has a pretty mundane job. Um, 
and is just barely scraping by and like you're instantly in this is somebody yeah this is this is some somebody you get you know where they're coming from that this is a novel concept but they're just trying to pay the bills and sit there while the person watches the video and move on to the next one and it really makes her relatable um and i it's a great way into this concept of technology oh thank you. i uh I also thought, like, if we could do this, if we could sit, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, and like you listen to podcasts about people that disappeared, and you never know what happened to them, or these kids get abducted, these heartbreaking stories, and you just think, had there been a surveillance camera in the right place at the right time, we would know who Jack the Ripper was, who the Zodiac Killer was. Um, but also, there are things that we probably never even knew happened. There are probably things in history that we'll never know. Um, and that's one of the hustles in Pestilence is Ashley is trying to find these exclusives that no one knows about, searching through history for these little, these peanuts and a bit of shit. Like, what is the thing uh, that they can upsell to clients? Like, you're the only person who's seen this. Um, so, yeah, she's hustling, but she also has a really close relationship with her grandmother, who's in a retirement community, it's pretty much like a sleeping capsule. The world's so overpopulated. And Ashley is also much like how we people today would take a DNA test to be like, oh, what's my family tree? Where do I come from? And instead of getting like DNA tests, imagine if you could just put a camera back through your own lineage. So as much as Ashley is working with these clients and upselling them on exclusives, she's also looking at her own history. And the service, I think if you could do this, people, you could look for religious artifacts through time that support your faith. You could look at the origins of the universe. But you and I know that most people are just going to look for the grisliest thing they can find in history, right? Like true crime is so uh, big right now that I think people would want to, people that afford it would look for not enlightenment, but more titillation and like, put me in the place, put me in Jack the Ripper's place. Um, right. So well, if Reddit has taught us, things. if Reddit has taught <laughs> us anything. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I but agree. It looked, <laughs> Yeah, but looking at her own family history and then also looking at all these uh, horrific things, there is an intersection uh, of a killer that uh, is affecting her in the past and is affecting her in the present. And there's also a threat in the future, uh, because if you can send cameras back through time in the present, you know someone in the future is probably watching you right now. And the idea that you never have any privacy and that you or I at any moment when we're at a stoplight picking our nose, there could be someone in the future watching us. We become their entertainment. Um, yeah, I so mean, that, and it flies too. I mean, the you were saying earlier about you know this probably past tense probably has more words in it than some of the other graphic novels you've written. But I flew through reading it. I thought it was like so well paced, and it just kept going and going and going. And I, I mean, I love that about it. Um, I just I thought it took off, and once that story got rolling, I mean, it it did not let up. That's one no, of the I things I thought was great about it. I don't take my foot off the gas. You know, um, part of the way I make, I write, and I, I teach script writing at uh, Pacific Northwest College of Art, and I make my students write their graphic novels the same way. And this is, I do a beat sheet, and I say, something that's horrific or comedic, you don't want to go too long, right? I think like 90, 100 pages, or rather 96 pages is perfect. So if you pick up any of my graphic novels and count the pages, they're almost all 96 pages, because I feel like that's the perfect amount to get you in, hold your attention. Um, I write in a really strict three-act structure. 
but also I do a beat sheet of what I'm going to do on every page before I start scripting. And then I script the entire thing without any dialogue. And I ask myself, can you visually follow this? Like if it was a foreign film, um, could you follow this story without words? And there's a lot of technical things going on in past tense. I don't know that you would get every detail, but emotionally you could track the characters and the conflicts that they are going through. And once we dial all that in, then I'll go through and add the visuals. So it's the pacing to me is the most important part of a comic. So when you do a beat sheet, like what's my plan for page 36, 37, 38, a really high level, you can see where your pacing will lag, um, where you're going too long without an action, action sequence, where you're going too long with the talkie scene. So you, if you just wrote a script, you might end up with nine pages of people in a cafe talking, which is not a visually interesting comic book. Like no one's, right. it's not going to go anywhere. You know, in a French New Wave film, sure. We'll, we'll do that. Mm-hmm. At a comic book, you have to keep things moving. So I always have a plan for what we're doing on every page. Uh, and the economy of storytelling, for me, is really important. And the less time you spend on the page, the quicker you can get the book done. Uh, you know, If you're lucky enough to get an artist to commit to 100 pages, that's a lot of time for someone. It's a lot of time for Alberto. You know, uh, Even if you're getting paid, um, you know, you, you're, your energy wanes on a project. So if a project, I feel that with all, with writing and with making comics, that Newton's law applies, a body in motion stays in motion. So the more invested you are, the more attention you pay to the book, the quicker it will get done. And then you could set it down and move on. The other thing about this book is that it is dark um, and you're dealing with really unpleasant people and, and unpleasant situations. And you're putting the main character, Ashley, through hell and I, it, it took a toll on me to spend that much time in this world with this situation that by the time I was finished lettering it in December, like I couldn't look at it. I was just like, I have to get away from this book. I've been working on it like nonstop for like a year with writing it and working with Alberto and then lettering it. Um, yeah, it's a dark world. So it's hard for us to spend that much time in it. I imagine as a reader, 96 pages of content is, is enough. You know, if it goes by really quick, then that's the best thing. That's the best compliment you can give me. Yeah, I mean, I didn't feel like I I dwelled in it because it was dark. Like I was, I, I went through it. Like I said, pretty quickly. It has a it moves at a clip, and, and I'm a fast reader anyway. And you know, um, but I don't. I try since I started doing this in terms of reviewing and interview and interviewing folks. I've really like tried to slow down when I read a comic book because I've always been since a kid a fast reader. And I feel like you do a disservice when you like fly through a comic book. So I try to slow down to pace my, myself, even if something is moving along for me. But yeah, I, I mean, it was, I, I, I was, I felt when I finished it, um, like that I, I needed, like I wanted to put on an episode of like Ted Lasso or something, you know, I just had to go, I just need to talk to my wife. She's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I just read like a really good comic book. I just need, can I get like, I get like 30 minutes at a good place. <laughs> it's tense. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like you don't want to hold that moment for so long. It's so hard to make that, get that feeling in a comic book that if you're lucky enough to do it, you don't want to hold it too long and go. Sometimes uh, I have friends, they'll send me a script and they'll be like, it's 250 pages. And I think who's going to draw that or 300 pages. I was like, uh, that's too long, man. It's yeah. just too long. We all love to read, but I think horror thrillers and comedies work better in these short contained bursts. And I equate it to like a horror movie. A good horror movie is going to be 90 minutes. Right? Yeah, horror, yeah, I agree. You're not going to watch a three-hour horror movie because you're exhausted. You don't have that much yeah. chemical, those that many chemicals in your body to sustain that. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
And you know, one, one of the other things I want to say and compliment you and the rest of the team on past tense, because a lot of times if you read a comic book, it's like it's a noir, neo-noir, however it's described in terms of being suspenseful or a thriller. I mean, I think, I mean, comedy can be kind of tough in a comic book, but I think thrillers are tough um, because horror, you know, there are crutches, the wrong word, but there are some things you can go to to develop horror. I mean, jump scares are one thing, but you can go gory and do like different things. The book I never felt with past tense was was gory, but it was suspenseful. And and, and I mean, it it was as close to, I think, I that I would describe it as like Hitchcockian as any comic book I've read. You're gonna make me cry. <laughs> well, I I being honest, I don't. I appreciate I don't, that. I don't bring you on here to lie to you. <laughs> those are my influences. Um, as you can see, I've, I even got a psycho poster back there. All my John Carpenter prints. I love horror and thrillers, and I don't like. I don't like a, a, like the Saw movies or things. Just watching people suffer willy nilly to me is not. To me, it's not artful because anyone can do that, right? Just chopping someone to bits. And mm-hmm. part of what we're doing in past tense is saying that, um, you know, if we can go back in time and look at all these disgusting things, I can't then make the book about disgusting things happening, right? Because then I'm falling prey to the very thing I'm critiquing. So a lot of the more horrific things happen off panel or uh, she's eating like a bagel while uh, someone's watching uh, the Black Dahlia's murderer drain her blood. Um, because I don't want to promote the very thing that I'm critiquing. But also, if you don't have an artful way to do that, and I don't know how to chop someone to bits anymore in a way that hasn't been done, I'm just like, I'm going to find a different way to make to get you through that story. Um, yeah, and I, there were a couple of times where I thought, like, it could very easily go to, like, a trauma porn type of place. And it never... Did you, you and Alberto and Paul always went like just, just enough, and then the, because there were a couple of moments, and um, uh, I I was reminded of there was one thing I don't want to spoil anything. There was something towards the end of the book that I thought was going to be shown the beginning of yeah. a scenario where a character uh, pulls somebody over, and I thought a lot of it was going to be shown. I'm like, oh, well, here it is. Here's what I kept thinking they were going to do and now they're finally going to do it. And I was reminded of, um, there was a moment where Quentin Tarantino talks about Reservoir Dogs and they're talking about the scene where, who is it? Madsen, Michael Madsen's character cuts off the cop's ear and they shot that scene. But then they, they pulled away and the one where they pulled away and you could hear it is the one that they shown because it was more impactful than the maybe more graphic or visceral scene. And I was like, damn it. That was, it was so good in the writing and the visual of it at, towards the end of the book. I just thought that was very, very well done. So if you don't, sh- well, thank you. But if you, if you, like, if you lead someone to something and then you pull away, you now become part of the story. You're in, you're an active participant in the story because now you've got to imagine what happened, right? And it's the opposite of what they always say: show, don't tell; show, don't tell. But in, some content is better off not shown. And I know exactly the scene you're talking about. And we thought about it. We, I went back and forth. Like this is like kind of the culmination of a lot of pots that are boiling. Yeah. But it's not. It's 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 so unpleasant that it's, it's going to ruin the tone of the book. Like you're not going to be. I, I thought we would lose you if we showed that. And him saying it, him talking about it instead of showing it to me, 
it, it breaks a screenwriting rule, but I, that's that's how we ended up doing it because I felt that was a more tasteful way to do it. I I thought it I thought it worked better. I I yeah. I mean, thinking about it now and and reading through it, I thought like you know that was that was the way to go. I, I yeah, I really uh, appreciated it. I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, I really Thank think you. you and the creative team did a fantastic job with this. Um, I love you've worked guys. with Alberto before, right? And Paul Little. Yeah, Paul Little's colored a few of my books. He's my main man. I love that guy. Um, he's a wild Canadian man. And I've worked with Alberta before. <laughs> we did a, we started a mini series called The Cicada. Uh, and then we ran into some issues with the publisher. Uh, and then we got the rights back and we're sitting on it and we'll probably relaunch it uh, next year. He actually has, I have the second issue on my desktop, lettered, ready to go. Oh, okay. um, we just set it aside to work on um, past tense. But even through working through this, I kind of feel like we became like a band, three of us. Um, you know, we had Dark Horse supporting us, but the three of us have, were our own little unit, and we just read each other really well. And I've gotten to know uh, Alberto. He lives in Italy, so it's been a little bit more challenging for him and I to communicate. Right. Um, but we just really bonded and had each other's backs, and we just really, really gelled. So we, you will see more from Alberto uh, and Paul and I as a trio. I'm going to continue nice. working with them. but. You know, there's also mon- like I am a independent creator, so I'm always kickstarting things. I'm always looking for ways to pay my creative team, and that's you can't ask you can't ask people to work for free. So, right, uh, that's the number one thing. So, if I can find funding or another trick, another publisher into working with us, <laughs> <laughs> then I will continue keeping that team together because I love those guys, and I think we bring out we bring out good stuff in each other. Well, I, I hope you do now, and I now I got to go. Through the Jason uh, McNamara back catalog, um, I'll send you some PDFs. <laughs> that's, it's it's funny. I feel indie comics and well, not you know anything outside of like the big two comics. When like when you're online, sometimes it feels like you know who all the players are. And like doing this the past year or so, I'm always amazed when there's like there's oh there's so there's so much more to discover, you know. Right. And um, especially when you get into something like this, and I I read the I think a press release was sent over to comic book Yeti and I, I read the press release and I was like, Oh man, I want to talk about this. Yeah. This sounds fascinating. Um, so yeah, I'm really glad to to have you on and to be, uh, to be chatting with you. It was, this was great. Um, even after was, 20 years, people are still discussing. Mean, my first comic book came out 20 years ago. <laughs> I saw that you, your first one came out in 2003. Yeah. Lesson here. I've got the cover here. Uh, my office wall. Uh, I didn't make comics every year. There were times I like rage quit and did other things for a couple of years. And, um, you know, early on in my career, I, you know, you'd see other people get successful and you would think, but aren't I as good as them as a writer? You know, why are they succeeding and I'm not? So I took some time away uh, before we did the Rattler. And I thought like, that's a really petty way to look at comics. That's a really, you shouldn't manage your career gauging yourself against other people. So probably about 10 years ago, Greg and I, Greg Finkel and I, um, we reconnected at my wedding and we started talking about doing the Rattler again. And he sort of brought me back and got me back on my feet and making the Rattler with him really reminded me that I have a specific voice and that I have sort of a macabre sense of humor. I like dark stories, dark morality tales. I like to give people something to think about when they put the book down. I think good horror should always talk about the times that it was made. Even if you're not, it's not a message book, right? But it, yeah. it should, it does occur in a time and place and gives you something to think about. So once I realized that I have a very specific voice, I realized I'm not competing with anybody. 
Um, and I don't mean that as, as a boastful thing, but like no one tells Jason McNamara stories as good as I do. I've got that guy's voice down pat. Right. Uh, so once I realized I had a voice, I stopped trying to be the guy who could do anything. Like I did historical fiction. I did a romance. And look, I, I'm a loving person. I love the people in my life. I can't write a romance to save my life. <laughs> that is it flat. And once I realized if I could stick to my voice, um, then I was so much happier and I could then celebrate comics and I could appreciate all the other things that other people were doing. And, you know, uh, if, if a Jimmy book sells better than a Jason book, that just means people wanted the Jimmy voice that week or that month or that year. It's nothing against me, you know, at all. So right. to any creators listening, like find your voice, find the thing that you do better than anyone or find a thing that really speaks to you and your experiences and your background and your values and your beliefs. Uh, once I latched onto that, I was just so much happier. I could really unclench and just really, really enjoy comics and other people's comics. And now when I go to conventions, it's like we're just celebrating the thing that we love. Right. And if I make money or I don't, who cares? We're all going to die poor. Money, money, is, <laughs> yeah, well, money, is not a, money is not a metric of success. Making, making a book that you are uh, so incredibly proud of is success. So when I do a book like um, Greg and I did Nocturnal Commissions, I feel like a millionaire. When I hold this book, I feel like my butler has his own butler. Right. You know, I feel like I take <laughs> right. a limo to the toilet. Right. And uh, it's, it's only when I go to buy something and my card gets declined that I think, well, that doesn't measure up to the reality I told myself. Right. But who cares? But, yeah. I, I mean, I no, I get that. I mean, um, I've been reading comics. I mean, I was away for reading comics for a while. I liked them as a kid. And then, you know. You go to school and you got a life. college and law you got school. A girlfriend. But yeah. But I no, I got back into when I got back into reading comics, and then it was like the beginning of the pandemic. And I was like, I'd like I was reading stuff and just thinking about starting to work with comic book yeti and re, a review. And I never, you know, in the beginning I didn't think I was knowledgeable enough. Like I like reading them and I could send out a tweet and be like, hey, tag this person. I liked your comic. You make art good. Um, <laughs> you make nice words. Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought, I, maybe I could write one. I've always thought about writing one. But yeah, I had like a, you know, like a six-page story published. And I was like, I was telling everybody. I was like, it was, I was like, I am successful. <laughs> They're like, my wife's like, did you make any money doing it? I'm like, oh, absolutely not. I lost money, in fact. But <laughs> Absolutely. And some books lose money. Even with a publisher, some books lose money. That's the other yeah. thing. People think because you have a publisher, uh, you know, that you, it's just automatically, you don't have to do any work. It just goes out into the universe and comes back with $100 oh, right. bills. Yeah. You know, um, Dark Horse was very generous. Dark Horse has been great to work with. We had a budget. We had an editor. So you mentioned that I letter my own books. I, um, I was lettering this and it, as we got to the end of it, I talked to my, my editor and I was like, you know, um, so I have to start doing the chapter breaks and I need to do the Odyssea and the back matter. And he's like, you know that we have a design team. Like I was pretty <laughs> much asking him like where the barcode was. Cause I'm so right. used to doing everything myself. <laughs> and then I was like, Oh my God, this is what it feels like to be a successful writer. Like someone's going to do something for me. I was like, I'm almost, I'm almost in tears. I was like, please. <laughs> So they did all the chapter breaks, all the design stuff in the front and the back. And it looks gorgeous. It looks so much better than what I would do. Normally, I do all the design work. I hack my way around the covers. I do the back. I do all the interior design stuff. And you can tell because it looks the same in every dumb book. It's like a Woody Allen movie. that is like plop the words in the screen. <laughs> like latest Woody Allen movie. Uh, so to have the Dark Horse team behind it and dress it up and make me look like I knew what I was doing. It takes a lot of talented people to make me look like I know what I'm doing. 
well, poor, Alberto, uh, poor Paul could do better. Dark Horse could do better. <laughs> no, I, could I, do better. I think everyone did a, did a, a great job. Um, so, so let's, I want to go back though. Um, cause you said it's been 20 years. Mm-hmm. Your first one in, published in your first comic published in 2003. So I'm, I'm just curious this is what I like to ask folks. It was like, what made you kind of want to be a writer and why comics in, in particular? So I grew up on comics. My father taught me how to read with comic books. We would go to the butcher shop and the butcher shop had a spinning rack of comics. So he would get veal or whatever he was making. He would get some Spider-Man comics. He would get his Savage Sword of Conan magazine and, okay. you know, and, and his hustlers or whatever else he was reading <laughs> with the pornography of the day. <laughs> And he'd read his pornography and I'd read my comic books and we'd have a veal and watch, you know, the Incredible Hulk TV show was on TV. So to me, it was, that's how I I view stories is always through comic books. So if I think of like the big moments in my life, like a wedding or a car wreck or anything of that sort, I always in my mind break it down. Like how would John Romita Jr. draw this? You know, (laughs) like how would um, Steve Rue draw this? I think of it in that term. So, but, but when I got out of high school, school I thought like I was going to be um, a filmmaker. I ran around with a video camera and filmed all my friends doing things. But what I found is I did not have the communication skills to work with large groups of people. I was a self-taught punk from Long Island. Um, so I, again, I sort of put comic books away for a little bit. I put filmmaking away and I just had to find jobs to work. And I moved to San Francisco. And, you know, became the town drunk and did all the things you do when you're in your 20s, embarrassing yourself. Yeah. Uh, and then I met an artist named Tony Talbert. And I just love this guy. And he was like 10, probably 10 years older than me. He grew up in Marvel Comics and he was an excellent illustrator. Just phenomenal. You know, he would just do these sketches. I was like, this is, you should be a comic book artist, man. You're so good. And he was like, ah, oh, they'll never. He just didn't know how to navigate the industry at all. And he, he like me, was sort of like a renegade punk you know, thumbing his nose at the world. And I said, okay, man, if I write a comic book for you, will you draw it? And he said, sure. So we came up with Lesson Hero uh, and we got along great and we did that. And then we did two more graphic novels, actually three more graphic novels. We just finished another graphic novel called Sucker. So he's one of my favorite people in the world. And now he's just doing his own books. He's, you know, he's just going to make his own books until his eyesight completely goes or he retires or... So I met some, I met an artist because I can't draw... Uh, but in the 90s, I was doing zines. I, I thought I was going to be a poet for a while. My poetry is terrible. It's all very dark. It's all very Bukowski-esque. That's what I was reading. Okay. Uh, my prose <laughs> is very Hemingway-esque. It all sounds like Albert Camus' The Stranger. Uh, but when I got into comic books, I could realize like my prose, I didn't have a lot of confidence in. But when you write a comic book script, you can sort of hide behind someone else's artwork. So I was always like hiding behind Tony. Like, look how great Tony's work is. And then I throw a couple of quips in there. And then I just loved it. Like, it's like heroin. Once you get those fresh pages of artwork in and you're like, I wrote this and now it's art. Like, you, I can't stop. I'll never stop. I just love it so much. Uh, and then I started collaborating with other people and other people bring out different sides of you, like in a relationship, like they're not always the same. Paige Braddock, who I do the Marching Confederacy with. I mean, she's had a long artistic career. She works for the Schultz company, all the Snoopy licensing she does. Right. So she is, and she did Jane's World for 20 years, that strip. Like she brings out something completely different. I mean, much more whimsical. Greg Hinkle and I really work on like atmospheric, uh, sort of goofy horror stuff, the Rattler, Nocturnal Commissions. Alberto has like a really hard noir sense. Like I'm not going to put him on a comedy. Like 
he and I bring that out in each other. So it's that's the beauty of a collaboration is two people get together and they make this art baby that neither one of them could have done on their on their own. So when I look at a book, I'm like, I, it's hard to see where I end and they 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 stop because the whole vibe works together in Congress to give the reader an experience. So that's often what I think about at the end is like someone has to pick up this book and read it. And what is that experience like? And how do we manipulate an emotional response together? That's, yeah, my, man, I, that's my TED talk on collaboration. Well, I, I'll, I'll, you got more? I'll listen to it. I, I mean, it, it sounds like, um, you know, a very uh, succinct way of describing the beauty of comics collaboration, you know? Uh, Greg's wife calls me, Greg Henkel's wife calls me his other wife. Oh, okay. Like, Are you talking to your other wife? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it is a marriage. There is sensibilities. There is an element of trust. And I think um, having been married a long time, I think the secret to any relationship is communication and also like unrelenting support. It's a, relationships are a faith-based system. Collaborations are a faith-based system. Yeah. I will I will follow Alberto to the gates of hell if he wants to tell a story a certain way. Like let's do it. Like if you unrelentingly support your collaborators, they will give you good work. They will give you their best, and that's how I feel like you should treat everyone in your life. Unrelenting support. Yeah, I mean I wholeheartedly co-sign that. Yeah. Absolutely. And problem solve together. So if something's going wrong in your relationship or your collaboration, it's not happening to me or you. It's happening to both of us. It's happening to the team. We're smart. Let's figure it out. Right. So um, even though we did this with Dark Horse, Alberto and I, because we had that pre-existing relationship, we could problem solve together, you know, get on Skype or back and forth. Like, hey, this isn't quite landing. What do we think? There was an issue at the end where I realized, like, there was a there was a continuity error in an illustration. And I, I was just like, let's just, I, you know, I did a mock-up of Facebook or of some Photoshop. I didn't want to waste his time. I'm like, you know, these, I sketched out some solutions and we went back and forth and we solved it in like 12 hours. Like I never had to involve Dark Horse or my editor because it was my fault. I wrote it wrong. The problem was actually in the script and I didn't catch it in the roughs. So you should always really, really look at your roughs. And I didn't want to have, you know, X thousands of copies of a book with a continuity error printed. That would kill me. I would lose sleep every night. I'd wake up at three in the morning. Yeah. And think like I've got to like change my name to Mason Jack Namara and move to Salem or something. Hey, that's that's not a bad nom de plume, <laughs> Mason Jack Namara. They'll never find me. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, um, I'm glad you're able to solve that. But, <laughs> no, but I mean, if you didn't have that type of relationship in terms of your collaboration, where you felt safe communicating that and talking about it and really ready to to get in the mix and hey we need to just deal with this and let's be adults let's figure it out let's do this or I'd say let's not problem. be petty like, yeah. like, hey man i fucked up this is a me thing um, yeah. can, can, can we fix this what resources do we have to fix this what do you need to fix this um and we just support each other so and i just i just i look at the book the same as you and i just like Every time I pick up past tense, I want to read it. If I pick up it, I look at page 50, I'm going to read it to the end. If I pick up it in page 20, I'm just going to read it to the end. It's like this roller coaster ride uh, that Alberto is sort of linked together that you can't get off the ride. I put chapter breaks in there just to give you like a pause and a chance to reset and to feel like a human being again before we pick up it all over again. So I don't know. Hopefully people will put it down uh, just for a second, like a stopping point. That was a, a late idea that we had that Dark Horse was supportive of because originally it was just going to continually flow, almost mm -hmm. like those Walking Dead collections where they take out the issue breaks and you just get on. I love those because they were so tense. 
And I felt so emotionally wrecked by the time I got to one of those Walking Dead collections. But in this time, I thought, you know, there's so much going on. And it's so, like, it's just tense. Um, and the book breaks down into equal 24-page chapters. Like, why not just give people a break? A chance to reset, pause, go to the bathroom, and come back and get back on the ride. But it should feel like a ride. That's how we engineered it. That's how we really thought about it. It's like yeah. super tight. Every page has a plan. Uh, and it's like, like, don't stay. Just the economy of pacing. Alberto is just really, really good at it. And his character work is really strong. So I, I, a lot of dialogue I took out and then I put in more caption boxes uh, because it is, there is an internal dialogue where she is actually can't really share her true feelings with anyone really. So there is a lot of internal monologue with her. Um, so that was sort of a, a challenge to get those, balance those things right. So if you just read the captions throughout, it would make sense. If you just read the dialogue, it would make sense. And do they support each other? I rewrote that thing so many times after I got the art. I really spent a lot of time re-lettering it, looking at living with it. Um, so I was really so relieved when I got done lettering it. I could just put it away and then it just it focus on introducing it to an audience. Um, because a book like this, there's many, many different ways that you could explain it or pitch it to an audience. And I think that's a whole other art that we had to really refine how we talk about the book too. Because there's, there's a lot of spoils, uh, things that we could spoil. There's a lot of back and forth and twists and turns. And I want all that to be fresh. So when you pick up the book, these things should not be spoiled for you. It should take you on a ride and surprise you. Yeah. And I mean, it really does. We talked a, a bit about how it, it opens, you know, and introduces Ashley, but it, it, it really, I mean, a ride is a great way to describe it. Um, it, it, it really does kind of move like slow in the beginning as it introduces everybody, introduces you to the world. But I mean, it's not that many pages in and once, once it, once it picks up the pace, it just goes. <laughs> Once things and, go awry, yes. No, I like that there were chapter breaks in it. it. It gives you a moment to like breathe. I mean, I just, I mean, I, you know, kept going because I was like, what happens next? What happens next? What happens next? Um, but um, yeah, I mean, and then uh, Alberto, again, I just, the, I right? mean, I said the character fine? designs clothing, He's but like, whether or not, like some of the crowd scenes, like that's kind of tough to do. Like somebody trying to get lost in a crowd, somebody maybe following you in a crowd, you know, that that like noir sense of is that person behind me? Like there were a couple of those moments. Um, you always knew who everybody was. There was never a situation where I'm like, wait, is that him or is that Preston or is that Kurt? It's like you always knew who everybody was. And uh, like some sometimes it, with, when you're drawing a hundred pages, like that can be tough. Uh never had that right. issue. Um yeah, just just really really great action scenes. Just just really really well done. He draws backgrounds. That's the first thing people say when I show them like the PDF. Other artists like well, he drew all the backgrounds. I'm like he he draws backgrounds. He doesn't just like squiggle it in. Like he really draws all those faces in the background. Like he yeah. really cares. He puts a lot of energy into it. Um, so I I love him to death, and I'm just really grateful that I got to work with him and that. You know, other other artists I've begun to work with, and they're like, "Oh, sorry, I got to go work with Neil Gaiman." Or you know, Greg Hinkle gets scooped by Mike Mignola. He's doing books with Mike Mignola now. Oh, like, yeah. How do, I com- how do I compete with that? <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. a fucking hero, you know. I'm nobody's <laughs> yeah. hero. <laughs> I'm a hero to well, a guy I mean, in the liquor store. I don't think you should beat yourself up about trying to compare <laughs> with you know Mike Mignola. Because <laughs> uh, I would lose that comparison. Everybody would. He's fucking Mike Mignola. Yeah. 
Uh, I was um, working with an artist named Domo, and then he's like, "I got to go work on this Neil Gaiman book." And I was like, "Yeah, I guess if you if you think that's more important than our Kickstarter book, then I don't know what to tell you, pal." Like, I get it. How dare he? So how dare he? <laughs> so uh, hopefully, I can keep working with Alberto before uh, someone scoops him up. You know, before he's drawing like Conan or the Avengers next month, because he could, and he should. He's that good. You know, like why is he working with me? Poor guy. Um. I, well, I mean, okay, enough with the, the self-deprecation, um, because this is a great, great comic book. That's why. Um, anybody could, anybody can come up with some type of, like, story. Everyone has an idea. Everyone, I, the, everyone, everyone, everyone has something that they want to tell. But to put it together in a compelling way to make sure all the moving parts work together to come up with the idea of, well, what is it exactly we want to show and explain this technology? How much exposition do we need? What pieces of Ashley's story is going to make an audience like feel for her and get her is an incredible skill that you have. Thank you. Uh, it, It took a while. Like my editor with the first, the first pass, our editor, Brett Ezreal, patient, loving human being was like, Ashley is a little, a little abrasive to the, the first pass. Uh, and I was like, well, yeah, cause I wrote her just like, me. <laughs> that's why and nobody wants to spend that much time with me. So, uh, we had to soften her up and make her a little bit more human and not every, you know, you can't be at a 10 all the time because then 10 has no meaning, right? right. You have to have a cadence and a variance and she has to feel like a human being and not just a, a quip machine. So almost my first pass of everything, people are always a little extra. And then we find the humanity in them and there is a need and there is a background and there was a loss and a heartache to her. Um, that sometimes these people, and we know them in real life, they put up a facade or they put up, you know, a version of themselves to protect themselves to get through the day. So and then we do dismantle that facade, I hope, within her. And yeah. Give her a heroic edge, even though there's a lot of morality that we could talk about in in the book. Is anyone is she a good person? She does some things that are somewhat shady. Um, she does take advantage of a system, but she's doing it to get extra money to get her grandmother out of Reno, out of this retirement, this stifling, crowded retirement home. Um, so yeah, I hope I hope I'm glad I'm glad to hear that she read well. Yeah, I think she did. I mean, I don't know. Dude, I I think about this a lot. Do you want to? You know, I think it's more compelling in a story that. If someone is, are they all good? Are they all bad? That nope is anybody, you know. So when you have a cat, it can be boring. But when you have a character who is struggling with certain things or doing things because they have to, or has a certain goal and they want to find a way to achieve it, and you got to figure out well, where's where's the line? I mean, it makes it interesting. Um, hustling, right? I hope like I we meet people all the time, and like you you can't always be your best self if you're hustling three jobs. Right, like you're you're trying to hold it together. You're trying to have a life and get by. And so I, w- I really wanted to drill in those like those middle class concerns. Like I got to keep a roof over my head. She's a little bit short tempered, um, but she's a good person as we all are. Like I can get short tempered. I can take on too much. Um, yeah, I'm glad to hear that's reading. And I love her to bits, but I also like want to set her down at the end of the story. Like we give her a finite story. So past tense concludes the themes that we're talking about in past tense. They have a conclusion. We could, if it's successful, always go back to this world and tell a different story with the same sort of mechanism of sending cameras to the past. But uh, as far as Ashley's story, it concludes pretty, pretty defiantly at the end of this. 
And that's how I pitched it to Dark Horse originally. Like, if it works, we can do more. Almost like there's a different criminal volume. You know, there's different things we can do by looking into the past. I mean, you could you could give that concept of sending camera drones into the past to view it as it actually occurred to five different writers and get like five completely different versions of that. Oh, yeah. And so. and and five completely different genres. Um, mm-hmm. you know, just that it's such an interesting, you know, concept that I don't know that I've I, was trying to think because you always i always try and like relate it to something else but you know i i can't think of anything used in quite that way and especially then of course of course somebody would monetize it <laughs> like they would right monetize away. it and uh you know and th- so we have some bureaucracy around it so in the book you can't look at anything from the past 50 years as a little privacy thing and that you can't use any of these things in court and some people have said well why can't you use it in court and then I point out, like, Apple won't decrypt a phone from a killer. Like, there was a shooter, and the police, they were like, you know, they want to, the FBI wants to look at his phone. And Apple's like, no, we're not going to crack his phone. That's our proprietary, you know, system and software. We're not going to do that. Um, how we use Alexa recordings or how we use, like, Google um, Siri recordings. Like, not every state has the same approach to how those things are going to be incorporated into a legal case. So, because this is in the future, sort of a new technology. Uh, they haven't quite figured out how to absorb it into the legal system uh, ethically. And that's what the proprietary thing. It's not like people get a, a keepsake and they get to take it home. It's not like a ride at Disneyland where they, you get a picture of yourself on the roller coaster. Like you have to pay to go into a viewing room to view this and you can't take it with you. You can only watch it in that space as part of the proprietary uh, software uh, of yeah, it all. I, mean, so, I, I thought that was good in terms of how you set it up and said, you know, that was probably the most like exposition is this is mm-hmm. what it is. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. And then there's no like, yeah, you know what? Get through the comic book. And if you want to think about the concept and say, like, I'll probably buy it for my brother so he can read it. And then we can talk about it. And I'll say, what did you think of this? Well, what do you think about the court thing? And what do you think about that? And, and, you know, it's fun to talk about like, well, the applications of it within a story afterwards. But I think the way you set it up and you're like, all right. There's no questions about that. This is just what it is. This is the framework that we're operating under. Let's go. And let's tell yeah. what the story we we have to tell. Like, I think it's the way to go. I appreciated it. Yeah. Exposition on page four and five, and then we're in it, and we don't have to go back to it. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to over overburden readers with like an almanac. That's not a story. Like I could just list all the things in this world, but it's about Ashley and how this one human being interacts with this technology, with this job, and with this, the history and the killer and the circumstances that she finds herself in. So, yeah, what's going on in the rest of the world? I don't know. In Blade Runner, we don't get like, we don't know what's going on, on the other side of the planet, right? It's about one story yeah. in this world. Right. And if we return to this world, I can show you more about it. But I wanted to keep it really simple and focus on a character uh, that hopefully is relatable. Yeah, I, I I think you guys nailed it. I think it's great. Uh, Dark Horse awesome. has really been putting out some, I mean, fantastic books. And I've gotten to talk, talk to a few of uh, different creators, and Byron has as well. And I mean, I just really love a lot of the stuff that they are deciding to uh, publish and put out. So I think I think this is great. So I wish you, you all, you and the creative team, all the success in the world, Jason. Well, thank you, Jimmy. I really appreciate that. That's you, You've made me feel quite uh, <laughs> quite confident now in the material. <laughs> Because you yeah, know, I, you send it out, and you're like, I hope someone likes it. You never know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I, 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 I think there's a spot 
missing. There's a couple areas in the in the market that I think. Um, I, I think if you depending on no matter what you like, there's a comic book out there for you. But I do think there's a couple of places where the market could do a little better. And maybe somebody is out there doing it, and I just I just haven't seen it yet. So, but like real suspense thrillers, uh, like humor comics. There's a couple places that are doing them. Like Ahoy has some, and um, uh. And like romance comics, they used to be huge. They're not as much anymore. Um, yeah, Oni I think, used to do that. Oni I, used I, to do some really good ones. Yeah, I think still in like YA, they, there are some with coming of age stories and, and they're kind of like bundled together. Um, but yeah, like the, 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 just the real, like on the edge, I would, I would say like the edge of horror, like suspense thriller. I've read a few uh, and I want more. And this really definitely scratched that itch. You know, for the kid that saw Rear Window way too young, (laughs) right? We saw the same things. I like, I like that. That that's the type of uh, content I like. There's like those thrillers that are like the mixing of horror and thriller, and maybe a little sci-fi if you can do that well. Um, I just that's and they're hard to find. I'm you know, I'm a very I love horror, but I'm very picky. Uh, So when it comes to comic books, I'm always trying to make a book that I would love to discover on the shelf. Like, I would love to go into Cosmic Monkey and have Andy be like, you got to try past tense. You know, when your retailer puts something in front of you and they nail your tastes. Yeah. Uh, that's what I, I'm always looking for that thing that um, I haven't seen before. And, you know, there's uh, there's comics for everybody. If you like superheroes or YA or all that stuff, there's content oh, yeah. out there for you. And so for past tense, that's content for me. When I do the Rattler, that's content for me. Right. Um, that's really where where I live. My sensibilities lie. Well, speaking of content for you, I, I wanted to ask, I mentioned it earlier, but I read this, I don't know if it was on your website or in, in an interview when I was researching for this, that you really would want to write the sequel to Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which when uh, I first saw it, I don't know if you said that as a joke, but... <laughs> no, it's not a joke. And I've actually talked to um, uh, Malika Kai, the producer of the Halloween franchise, about this, and he gave me his email, he gave me his card... <laughs> And he's like, uh, as a comic book? All right, well, send me the pitch. And I've just been too busy. Uh, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I've got his his thing over there. And I will oh, work up. I have an idea in mind about how you could do that in the modern age and make it like a requill. Like, uh, and you could even get old drunk booze bag. Um, the guy, not Brian Dennehy. Who is the guy in uh, Halloween 3? The actor. Um, his name is escaping me, but he is, he, the, the hero of Halloween 3 is amazing. Right. He's a sex oh, yeah. addicted alcoholic, um, and yeah, I, for some I, reason he, he, he he's a doctor, but he becomes an he becomes a detective. He's like a detective, sex addicted doctor who's just getting drunk all the time. And women yeah, Tom are Atkins them. is the actor. Tom Atkins, right? right? I love Tom Atkins. <laughs> so you could do a, a a modern version where that story happened. And everyone thinks Tom Atkins is crazy, right? And maybe that it wasn't successful. And now the um, the warlocks are trying again, but they're using like an app. Uh, I just love the kookiness <laughs> of the idea. I to, so you, Halloween. Sorry, go ahead, Jason. No, but I would say you have an older version of Tom Atkins, like in a nut house. He's like, no one believe me, but they're doing it again. <laughs> and you know, Co- you could have another old man playing Cochran, like Cochran, the old man can still be alive, the old guy from Robocop. Um, just just the kookiness and the darkness and just the um 
like the campiness of killing children. Like that movie, like is like you have to be on a lot of cocaine for that movie to make any sense. So I just I love it for that reason. And uh, the the easiest way in is how do you have a, a a factory that makes makes masks for Halloween, and they don't make the Michael Myers mask. <laughs> <laughs> So I think there's a way to update it. I think they almost included a factory scene in the new Halloween ends where they were making all those masks. Okay. And it, it seems like such low hanging fruit. You're wondering why they hadn't done it before. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I think Halloween, there's a lot of different ways you can go. Halloween three was a movie that I think, cause I loved Hall- the first Halloween so much that when I first saw Halloween, I was like, this is terrible. This is, this is awful. What is this? And then I watched it again years later and I was like, I, I did not appreciate how dark this movie was. And, and I mean, yeah, I, uh, it was, it was one that I really changed my opinion having seen it, you know, when I was younger and then watched it years later. And I was like, man, there is like something to this and it's, it's so dark and it's just some very interesting performances. They make a lot of choices in that film. <laughs> Yeah. So the woman whose father is missing teams up with the drunk doctor and then immediately is like seducing him. She's got she's got daddy issues and then she's getting with drunk uh Tom Atkins. Where do you want to sleep, doctor? I'm like, what? He's going down on her immediately. I'm like, this movie's crazy. Yeah. You watch it now and you're like, this is out of control. Yeah. This is absolutely filmmaking out of control. Uh Stonehenge, pewter chips, like his plan. Let's just to talk about Cochran's plan is to steal Stonehenge, put it in a computer chip, put that into a mask, hope that mask sells really, really well, and then hope all those kids watch a commercial at eight o'clock as if there's no time zones in the United States. This is eight o'clock everywhere. Like, oh, on the easy, you haven't heard about the bugs turning kids into like the brains of the bugs in New York. <laughs> that's his plan and it has so many points of failure like if you've ever managed a project you're like something can go wrong but the movie starts off with killer androids he also makes killer androids to go out and do his bidding I'm like bro if you want to take over the world and kill people you've got terminators that are filled with orange yogurt <laughs> like stick he, with that <laughs> well then was what was he going to do with his mask factory <laughs> they're still making masks on halloween like the night they're going to kill half the population, they're still in production as if there's going to yeah. be demand right. in the future. <laughs> uh, I mean, that, from top to bottom, that movie was crazy. It was the 80s. We thought computers were going to be the end of us. Now they are. <laughs> yeah. Now now it's, reality is here and uh, our so AI overlords. I have the novelization of Halloween 3 somewhere nearby. <laughs> Uh, I've hunted down all those early novelizations. They always give you something. But uh, yeah, that was the era of like divorced dads, you know, drinking and driving was a big thing. I just think you could do all of that and just have the camp, the horror. When that little kid's head caves in. So I'm a redhead. And the main, the kid who dies in that movie, he's he's a redhead. He puts on the mask. I loved Halloween as a kid. I loved masks. He watches TV. I love watching TV. And then his head starts to cave in. Yeah. And centipedes and snakes come out, and it is fucking ghastly. Even today, it puts like uh, it makes me deeply uncomfortable to watch that. And it's surrounded by like bozo batshit crazy stuff. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I would love to. I would love to go to a cabin, take a couple eight balls of coke, and just write like the sequel to that, just as crazy as that one is. Well, I, so that I is wish my you... dream project. It'll probably kill me. <laughs> yeah. I well, I, I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> that would be amazing. Just, just uh, you know, just get an old car, like um, like Dan Aykroyd did when he wrote the wrote the Blues Brothers. Just get an old car and an old typewriter. Just hit the road, <laughs> and just watch all the women half my age throw themselves at my drunken self. Because <laughs> uh, that's Hollywood magic. Yep, how it works. Well, uh, Jason, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast. Um, for everyone listening, this is Jason McNamara. We've been talking about past tense from Dark Horse. It will be at your local comic book shop on June 7th. And I think in bookstores, June 20th. I think it's comic book stores, June 21st. That's what I remember. Okay. But I'm, you know, I'm not a detail person. It's coming well, in June. That's what the press release said. But if it's wrong, I will, uh, I will find out and I will put it in the show notes, but definitely June. Um, but, uh, yeah. And um, you should pick it up. It is a, I mean, neo noir. It is a, a t- past tense. Tense is uh, it's good. It's in the title. It is a tense thriller. It is suspenseful. Um, it is character driven. It is gorgeous in terms of the art and the colors. And it's a story I think you're really going to like. You're going to get through it, and then you're going to want to read it again to see if you missed anything because you read it so fast because you had to know what happened next. Um, so that's every, my pitch. Every, I appreciate it. That's awesome. <laughs> And every copy sold keeps me off the street. But more importantly, it keeps me off your street. So you hear that? Keep Jason off your street <laughs> and buy a copy of Past Tense. Um, well, Jason, uh, thank you again. Please thank come you, back friend. anytime. We'll get more into horror movies and our other uh, influences from the 80s that we saw way too young. Um, so I really appreciate oh, yeah. you being here. Uh, I appreciate all right. you, my friend. For Comic Book Yeti and the Cryptic Creator Corner, I am uh, Jimmy Gasparro, and I will see you next time. Thank you for listening. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptic Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.